0: Hi, welcome to Hear Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers and find out the story behind the story, and today we have Joan Leota with us, who is a a story performer, a published writer, and a photographer, and I was looking over the material that she sent me, and Joan, I'm impressed. You have done a bunch of stuff.
1: Well, I've lived a long time, so what can I say?
0: (laughs) One of the things that really interested me was uh, that you do your own photography,
1: uh, that's really one of my hobbies. Um, I started out t- trying to do it professionally. I did take t- some training informally at the Smithsonian when I lived in Washington, D.C., but um, at the time, photography was very upfront cost, uh, and I had a couple of exhibits and then decided to just keep photography as a hobby. And It just gives me such pleasure to try to pick out something that's going to tell a story in the photo. So.
0: Right, and you do, and and you do mostly black and white, is that right?
1: Actually, not mostly. I uh, I'm lazy now. I do color and black and white. But you know, uh, on the computer now, any color picture I take, I can take a look at it in black and white. And when I'm out there snapping with the digital, I can think of it in either black and white or color. You know, in, in black and white, you're looking more at the lines and the design and the depths of shading. Right. So there's advantages to both both types.
0: Right, and then I, you know, uh, uh, I was telling you that, you know, I'm an art, I was an art major in college, and uh, yeah. and because of the expense of painting and some of the other uh, forms of art that you can do, I, I just kind of settled on pen and ink, and it's quite a challenge to, because you're you're doing the same thing, you're looking at shade and lines and open space, and so it's really a challenge.
1: Well, I'm a huge admirer of pen and ink, so I hope to see some of your work sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
0: I had done, uh, when I was living up in New England, you know, they have all those beautiful stone walls.
1: Oh, yes. And oh. so uh,
0: I did a series of uh, stone walls, and they were, you know, there's different types of stone walls up there. There's the stone wall they used for the animals. There's one they used just as a lace wall just to mark, you know, the fields and things like that. So, it's, I really enjoyed that. I'll have to show that to you sometime.
1: Oh, I'd love to because I can think of a story for every type of stone wall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's so I'm look, I looked over your material and you're a multifaceted person. And it, looks like, it seems to me like your interests are very broad.
1: My interests are broad. I, w- I was raised to have broad interests. Uh, my family we were all interested in a lot of things all the time and I was never forced to focus. And uh, so I've just grown up enjoying uh, when I have to focus, you know, when I when I'm doing one thing, I'm doing that thing. Right. But then I afterwards, um, I like to enjoy lots of things. It, I'm curious about people, and mm. that's really what's led me into uh, the different art forms. And actually, they're all connected. Oh yeah. So, by that interest.
0: Oh yeah. I I think that's true. And in storytelling, in particular, uh, as far as like the um, you know, hearing the story of someone's family or historical figure or uh, whatever—it's it's, uh, you know—it's all about people.
1: Indeed, it is. And even when the story doesn't seem to be about people, the story is really about how that series of events affects people right. and how it um, how it reaches into the person's mind and soul,
2: mm.
1: and uh, and how you as a teller if you're doing it orally, and really writing too, but you can see it when you're doing it in front of a live audience, uh, how you connect to that other person or an audience room full of people through the story. Mm-hmm. And it really uh, creates a bond uh, with other people. When I do it with writing, um, I don't always know how it's affected people, and um uh, recently, I was I was privileged. I did a story called Rings, and uh, it was published by St. Anthony's Messenger. It's about a mother and a daughter, and the mother's rings when she goes uh, was in the hospital. And uh, someone wrote me a letter. They took the time to write me a letter. That that rarely happens. Though. I mean, unless you're famous, of course. <laughs> I'm not. But the magazine bothered to send it to me, and it meant a lot to me because I knew that the story. Uh, had touched someone and that's the goal uh, is to really otherwise you know I just write for myself in a little journal (laughs) right well how did you get started in storytelling well my grandmother was really a storyteller from the time I was a little girl, she was telling me stories of her life, of people she knew, and uh, we would laugh together and go places together. And she was always interested. She said, you know, she said, see how different looking that person is. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. And so anything that was different or unusual uh, was interesting. People were interesting. We'd go places, and she'd take me to all kinds of international festivals. Pittsburgh is a very ethnic city where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandmother was, uh, belonged to a lot of uh, organizations that helped different uh, groups, and we'd go to various immigrant neighborhoods—not just our own Italian group. I'd go, I'd see Polish people, Russian, uh, Syrian—you know, it was uh, people from India who had come to Pittsburgh, people from Africa who had come to Pittsburgh. We're all invited to tea or coffee at my grandmother's house, and I'd meet them and talk with them. And then I, I was a huge reader. Mm. Uh, from the time I, I guess I learned to read when I was about four and that was it, (laughs) my nose is always in a book so story, you know, and I started to write at the same time and uh, wanting to write my own stories and things that I saw and uh, so my grandma really inspired me and then teachers and uh, just surroundings kind of uh, helped me along
0: Mm. What a great place to grow up
1: it was. Uh, it was an idyllic childhood, really. Um, full, I was surrounded by loving family, and that's the most important thing. And then my grandmother was really uh, quite a, an interesting person and unusual in her time that she was so open hmm. to so many different people.
0: Th- that's exactly um, what I was going to say. What an amazing person because, uh, you know, it hasn't always been that way. And uh, so This
1: was during the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people didn't have that. At that time, but I didn't know that. Right. I thought that's what everybody did,
0: hmm.
1: and uh, you know, it, it just seemed natural to me that you know, you would. My grandmother would greet people uh, of you know, lots of different shades, and who, some could speak English, and some couldn't, and it, it was fine. Hmm. You know, everything was good.
0: So you know, I, I just want to get a feel for what sort of stories you tell.
1: Well. Um, I tell um, several kinds of stories. Primarily, uh, when I'm doing performances, I tell adapted folklore. So I'll take a folk tale that you can find in several different places, and then I make my own adaptation of it at, that's geared to the audience that I'm presenting for, and I tell it. I like to use a lot of humor because I think people learn through humor. Mm -hmm. and the audience has a lot more fun that way. I like to have the audience participate. And the other kind of story that I tell uh, on stage is a one-woman show. I'll do a person from history. I've got an indentured servant. I've got uh, um, a real-life woman who was a Civil War, uh, the aunt of a famous Civil War spy. And I take these characters and use them to represent their time. I tell the actual history that goes along with them. And I want to let my audiences know that these women lived in a certain time. They had things that they contended with and help them to understand, usually through laughter again, although in a couple of the performances there's there's some serious notes, that um, there's things we can learn from each other. Oh, and absolutely. I like the one-woman shows a lot. Those are mainly for um, high school and older, uh, older, middle school, uh, high school and older. But for the storytelling, I, I get right down in there as young as the toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
0: <laughs>
2: uh,
1: I really love working with all ages. So yeah.
0: now, um, I, I, you were living in Virginia for a while, or
1: well, I lived in Virginia for 35 years. Oh, okay. <laughs> Actually, probably 30 in Virginia, 5 in the District of Columbia itself. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a little more than that, I guess, in Virginia now. I'm getting older than I think. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I went to Washington, D.C. to work as an economist. Uh, my degree is in economics and international relations, and I loved working for the government. Uh, I got married, and we decided that I would stay home. And when staying home, I wanted to earn a little bit of pin money, so I started to go back to what I had gone to school originally in, which was journalism. I worked for some of the newspapers as a freelancer doing a lot of business writing because I could work from home and do that, do all the interviews from home. And uh, when my children got a little older, of course, I was doing things with them, with storytelling from the moment they were born. But storytelling in the early 80s had its big renaissance, and I became aware of it. Mm-hmm. And I took professional training in storytelling uh, at the Kennedy Center. And I had had some theater training in, at the Pittsburgh Playhouse School of Theater in Pittsburgh. And, uh, but I, I knew it wasn't for me as a, as a profession on stage because of the demands that it made time-wise. And I'm kind of really a family person. But story performance um, lends itself more to that if you, if you agree not to travel. Uh, which I made that agreement with myself that I would stay in the Washington, D.C. area to perform primarily until my children were older. And I just loved it. I went to lots of schools and libraries and preschools, and then I began to develop the shows for the older children and at the same time continuing to write business articles. It not really until I moved here to North Carolina that I got brave enough to send out my fiction mm. Uh, fiction's a lot more difficult to have published because when you're writing nonfiction, it just has to be good. Right. And I'm the product of a lot of good training. So (laughs) that's, you know, can't take a lot of credit for that. But um, the fiction, that's very gratifying when someone else sees your vision. The little, you know, the song in 1776 where John Adams says, do you see what I see in his vision for America? Well, when you're sending out a story, they have to see what you see in it. It can be good, but it's not what that editor likes, and so they'll reject it. And there's, so there's a bit of serendipity involved, but it's, it's great. I, I, a lot of my stories that uh, have won awards recently, and again, I'm just really grateful um, to the uh, North Carolina, the, Cape, the Lower Cape Fear Historical Society has given me awards three times. And uh, I won an international award at uh, Gai, gaijan.au, um, an Australian website for a story I wrote about um, the Chinese terracotta soldiers where I imagined what – I saw that one of them, when I went to see them at an exhibit, I didn't get to go to China, in Atlanta, <laughs> I noticed that one of the soldiers was smiling, and that inspired a story to me. Why was the soldier smiling? I kept asking why. I looked up stuff. I researched couldn't find it, so I, I wrote a story as to why, and um, and then I, of course, with story, everything is in a circle. Uh, I've taken some of my award-winning um, historical fiction, and I've gone back and created performance shows, right, on on those, so.
0: Wow well, that's that's very interesting. You know uh and I'm and whenever I read your information that you had uh, degrees in international relations and economics and then you also have a BA in political science with minors in English and Spanish I thought
1: wow <laughs> that's pretty heavy stuff. You worked a lot in college. <laughs> well, actually when um I I desperately wanted to study in Europe and my father just told me that we couldn't afford that,
2: mm.
1: and so I had to look for scholarships. I started out as a journalism student, which you might be more, oh, that's more understandable, you might say, considering what my interests all my life were. But uh, in in the uh, 60s, journalism was kind of like a trade school, even at Ohio University. And I looked at it, and I said, gee, I have to know something to write about. right. And so I switched to political science, which is, of course, the most ephemeral of all of the things. But it was a lot of fun studying political science. And with the Spanish minor, I was able to get a scholarship to go to Madrid. I spent almost an entire year studying there. And then when I went to graduate school, because I knew with a political science degree I couldn't get a job, uh, I picked Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies. I'm ashamed to say, or actually, why be ashamed? Why not just be bold and admit the whole reason I chose it was because they have a school for one year in Bologna, Italy. Ah. And so I went to Italy and fulfilled my dream of learning Italian. And uh, I have relatives in Bologna as well. And I, I had a wonderful year. And I did manage to study enough to get my degree. So <laughs> I also spent, of course, a year in Washington, D.C., Studying, which is a lot more
0: serious than the year in Bologna. Uh, well, we're going to take a break right now, Joan, uh, but we'll be right Thanks. back. This is um, Chris with Here Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers and find out the story behind the story. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Chris Hillenberg with Here Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers. And today we have Joan Leota with us. Uh, Joan, um, what brought you to calabash?
1: Well, my husband. He wanted to retire south, and I felt that was only fair. Uh, we had stayed in the D.C. area because I loved it so much, and now uh, after 30-some years, uh, we were going to go where he wanted to go, and he wanted to be a place where he could play golf year-round. And I said, "I won't move any farther south than North Carolina because the bugs get too big." <laughs> so he brought me to three miles from the border
2: <laughs>
1: with uh, with South Carolina. So uh, i was I kept thinking that all winter long when we had such a very cold winter here, I keep thinking, Bugs are dying. Bugs are dying.
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, I, I what I have found, now I was living in Massachusetts. I moved down here three years ago. And I always joked that the mosquitoes up there, you know, wore leather jackets and bicycle chains. I mean, they were huge up there. And here they're not quite as big. And I haven't been bothered by them as much, you know. Uh, and, no,
1: actually, I, I'm sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to interrupt. But yeah, and mosquitoes and flies are actually less bothersome here. Right. <laughs> Just watch out for those fire ants. When oh step yeah, on property.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and there's such there's so many wonderful places down here too uh, to to go. I mean, uh, just about every weekend we we take our dog and we go up to Vereen Park.
1: I love Vereen Park.
0: Is that the best place ever?
1: Oh, it is it is so wonderful. And the well, I have so many stories in my head about that Revolutionary War cemetery uh, that's there. I have been uh, tossing them around in my head, and in fact. One of them uh, slightly appears in one of the stories about um, called The Hurricane of Independence. And actually, uh, Vereen Park also was inspiration for part of the way I adapted Fan Coral, which is uh, another Revolutionary War era story uh, that involves George Washington's visit to this area. Right. Because one of the graves there, one of the men is commended for supplying salt to the Revolutionary War.
2: Right, right.
1: And this was uh, very important. In fact, I've really kind of immersed myself in the history of this area because it's so fascinating. Uh, you know, settlers going back, uh, French settlers, not just um, English, uh, the Vereens. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm friends with the Ballamies, uh, who oh, yeah. the yep. way back.
0: Big name here, rent,
1: and they own Indigo Farm. Well, the, the branch that owns Indigo Farm is the people that I'm closest to, and so there's just so much going on here with history. It's it's been very inspiring uh, to be here and just enjoy not only the natural beauty, but just how warm and wonderful the people are. I I really think people make a place. and I've tried to get out and uh, do things uh, where I meet people who live here, have lived here, and are settled in, as well as, you know, my fellow expatriates from the North.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, the, I'm a history nut myself, and, uh, and actually, I wasn't until like my senior year in college. I took an American history class, and the professor, uh, and I, you know, I never really liked history. I was like every kid, you know, states, names, things like that, but this fellow, uh, the very first class, he uh, on, the, on the projector up front, he put a picture of a chair. And he said, um, and the question he had to the class was, tell me about these people. And I thought, tell you about these people. And what he was really getting at was, what does that straight back chair tell you about the Puritans? Yeah. Or what does that overstuffed chair tell you about the Victorian age?
1: Ooh, what does the recliner say about us? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: uh, and and it was just and all of a sudden it was like a switch went off and I said wow this is good stuff this is about people which is what I have always been about you know and so the first time I walked down to Vereen Park and I saw the cemetery and you know I keep trying to figure out where was the King's Highway
1: Yeah I I I think I've figured some of it out um but that um, one of my abiding interests is George Washington. I, my husband claims that I can turn any conversation to George Washington. Mm-hmm. He just right. gave me like 10 seconds. But, <laughs> and I worked at Mount Vernon for a while, so that just gave me more fodder for my obsession. But, um, so I'm very interested because he did stop there right. on his uh, tour through the South when he was trying to get votes for ratifying the Constitution.
0: Right, right. You know, and, uh, you know, one of the things, and of course, you're going to love this. So I found out that there was an actual boundary house where the oh, yeah. chimney was where they st- started the division between North and South Carolina. And so I'm like, okay, it's got to be someplace, you know. And so I did some research and found out that it was down at this uh, golf course, which has been closed for years because of uh, some sort of a dispute. Anyway, uh, at the time, that there wasn't any gates or anything there that, you know, or signs that said no trespassing. Uh, now it's set up that way. But so off I went with my dog and my GPS and I headed down to this golf course and got myself situated on the line and just started walking up the line. Wow. And, and there, n- and next to the old, it was a, you know, everything's all weeds and everything now. Um, there was a, a granite pillar. And on one side, it says NC for North Carolina, and on the other side, it says SC for South Carolina. And it's actually where the, uh, the chimney was for the house.
1: Oh, that is exciting. And I it, knew that there was a house, but I didn't know that there was anything remaining of it or any markers remaining of it. That's great. Oh, we'll have to get together and explore.
0: Oh, that's right. Well, well there are ways to get in there, but you know, uh, we we I'll call for up for a long time. For a long time, we were that was that was our Sunday walk, and we'd walk down the road to the golf course. And what a beautiful! I mean, it was just beautiful. And and you get down to the end, and you can see the little river inlet, or the at least where the uh, what they call the, the 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 crossroad there, the the uh, the, the um, way where. Uh, the intercoastal crosses uh, the part that goes into Calabash. I know what you mean. And uh, you can actually stand out behind the the main golf course building, and you can watch the boats go up and down, and the boat's coming into Calabash. And it's quite beautiful, and I'm sure that uh, someday they they will either reopen the golf course or they'll do something else with it, but what a beautiful spot. And there are oak trees there, Joan, that must be hundreds of years old.
1: Oh, yes, There's, it's um, it's amazing that there are several streets here. I had a dear friend, uh, actually, she's a friend of mine from Johns Hopkins. We became friends in Bologna, and um, she's uh, she came to visit here, and I knew that she would be terribly disappointed because nothing looks like para,
2: you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: you live in the South, you know, she has this image. And so I, I went around and located all of the streets that are lined with live oaks, and mm. there are actually... Several of them in this area, older ones with old live oaks going up and they branch over and cover over the street. And they're beautiful. They're really like another world and uh, quite, quite the sight, quite inspiring.
0: Oh, yeah. and w- when I was a kid, and I grew up in southern Indiana, um, I used to, you know, I was outside all the time, Joan. I was not an indoor kid. And I remember walking in the woods and, and I'd go up and touch a tree and I'd say to myself, no one's ever touched this tree before. Oh you know and uh and it was just such a uh, this whole feeling that there was something that that I was doing that no one had ever done before that was really unique and I look at these oak trees and in in little river uh down by the um waterfront uh some of those trees are just
1: stunningly
0: That's beautiful, huge
1: gorgeous. oak trees gorgeous gorgeous, gorgeous. Uh, yeah um so you but you've traveled where have you been oh? Yeah. Well, uh, lots of places. <laughs> um, last uh, last spring I went to Egypt with my daughter, and uh, we had a wonderful time. I've been wanting to go there since I was four, and my grandmother had gone, and uh, I just heard about it ever since then, so wanted to go. And I, I've spent a lot of time. Uh, the one place I guess I haven't been... Uh, a lot of places. I haven't been any place in South America. I've been to Mexico, which is North America, though, mm-hmm. and I haven't been any place, really, in Central or South America, and I would really love to go. And, uh, I, you know, though, truthfully, um, I'm happy to go places I've been, and I'm really excited to go any place I haven't been, and that includes, like, Greenville, South Carolina. Oh. I mean, it's not just that I have to go someplace exotic. It's my grandmother used to say I'd be happy to go to Greensburg, which was at that time about 20 minutes outside of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. because just seeing a new place, it's it's very exciting. I'm covering, well, where do these people shop? Where, where do they eat? Uh, mm-hmm. What's it like here? Uh, what's the main industry? Uh, what's their history? You know, it's... It's just very exciting to me i'm always always meeting people and talking to people. My daughter was amazed when she was studying in London, and I went to visit her that I got people to talk to me on the subway. called <laughs> the tube so, Mom, nobody talks on the tube. Quit talking to people. And I said, but they're talking to me right.
0: I'm the same way, I'm the same way i you know i I strike up conversations with people uh you know everywhere because I yeah. just find people so interesting and um you know i i I love to find out more about them. You know, it's just, I don't know, it's just something I do. Have you been to Greenville yet?
1: No, I haven't. That's oh, why I mentioned it. It's one of the places I'd like to go. <laughs>
0: you're you're going to love it. Uh, in the summer, they on Friday nights, they block off Main Street, and there are beautiful oh. trees on Main Street that, that actually shade the road and everything. And they have jazz. On Friday nights, and they block up the street, and people walk around, and they go in and out of shops, and they talk, and uh, then they have this beautiful park system there uh, that actually follows uh, the river, and there's a waterfall, and the park is very long, and as you walk, you're you're actually going in and out of different parks, and at the end of the parks is a zoo. Wow.
1: Oh, I must go to Greenville. We're going to put that on our list now for higher up. Mm. Have you been to Asheville? Yes, like Asheville very much. We've been there a couple of times.
0: I think, great uh, artwork yeah. there. Great
2: artwork. Oh, great
1: artwork. Uh, gorgeous, gorgeous scenery. I, I love being. Uh, I like the mountains as well as the sea. Mm. I guess that's shown in my heritage. My father's people were from the mountains in Italy, in the province of Abruzzi, and my mother's people were from along the coast in the uh, provinces of. Uh, uh, in the Naples area and in the province of Calabria, so Campania and Calabria. So it's, it's uh, you know, I've got both heritages and uh, makes it exciting, I guess, to be yeah. in both places.
0: Yeah, when we were living in uh, Massachusetts, we, we wanted a kind of a getaway, and uh, we, we decided we wanted to build a little camp someplace. And we went to Brattleboro, Vermont, and, you know, everything there that was, any land that was for sale was called sloping. Which usually means if you fell down, you keep rolling. Yeah, uh, I I grew up in Pittsburgh, remember? Right, right, right. And and, uh, then we ended up in um, we were ended up between Bennington and Manchester, which is on the uh, New York side. And we were driving down Highway Seven, and I said, "Oh my God, this is so beautiful! The Battenkill River Valley." It's just stunningly beautiful. Uh, the Taconics are on one side and the Green Mountains are on the other. And we actually built our camp at the foot of uh, Mount Glastonbury, which was in Shaftesbury in between Bennington and Manchester. And it was so remote that every time we brought people out there, they were like, how did you guys find this place? and And, wow. the, but the history there, Joan, you would have loved it. The history was phenomenal, and of course, you know Robert Frost came from there, and oh, yeah. uh, Norman Rockwell painted there in Arlington, Vermont, and it was all very it, the history was just phenomenal. I find here I have to dig a little more for history.
1: well, that's because we aren't as familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the history here is just um just tremendous. I mean, you know we're. Um, David de la new book uh, talks about the the stones and Roanoke the first settlement you know Native Americans uh, came here looking for uh, the shell you know the shellfish and uh, to see the ocean and so there have been people here making history for hundreds of years here as well we just aren't as familiar with it and we have to we do have to work a little harder but it's, it's certainly well worth it and and um, once, once we get a little more acclimated, I think you'll see that it's just as much all around you here as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, we're going to take another break, and, and we'll be back with Joan Leota to uh, talk more about the story behind the story on Hear Women Tell. Hi, and welcome back to Hear Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers, and we're talking today with Joan Leota, and Joan, I'm I'm having such a good time talking with you. It's it's great. Uh, I know that you've written a book called Tales Through Time, Women of the South.
1: Yes. um, This book is something I've put together with my friend Edith Edwards. It uh, is comprised of a lot of our prize-winning short stories. She also likes to write about history, and we discovered that most of our stories had women uh, protagonists. So we put them together and uh, we sorted them by era. We start in the colonial era and then we wrote one together just kind of for fun uh, for the modern era to end the book. And I've uh, made performance programs out of two of them, but I thought I would just uh, read you a little bit today oh, sure. Uh, from one of them called Hurricane of Independence which deals with uh, the trials and tribulations of an indentured servant. It's a category that not everybody remembers uh, from colonial era. This is why I do school programs Mm -hmm. on um, indentured servants uh, for the colonial era and on Civil War nurses who, uh, even though they were either for the North or the South, they treated young men of both sides. Uh, So these are categories of people who aren't uh, generally paraded before us in the history books, but bring a lot of reality to it. So, Hurricane of Independence. Bess sighed as she put down the sewing needle. She shook her head, tossing her chestnut curls, and looked down at her once soft hands. (sighs) They're so rough and red now. Scrubbing floors, feeding chickens, those weren't listed in my indenture contract with Miss Abigail. 24-year-old Bess had one more year to serve on her indenture. The first six years of the contract had passed happily. Abigail Williams was a fine woman, kind and generous, and she gave both Beth and Henrietta, another indentured servant, time to work on jobs outside their duties, earning money to buy their own independence. Beth hoped to someday open her own millinery and dressmaking shop. Henrietta's situation was different since she was a slave, but she still wanted to buy her freedom. When Abigail became ill in January 1775, she said that she planned to free Henrietta and release Bess from the rest of the indenture agreement. Abigail talked about leaving Bess her own business, one of Wilmington's better-known Market Street shops, a fine location just down from the courthouse. But when Abigail died in February 1775, her brother Benjamin Lasher and his wife Evelina produced a will that they said gave them the shop and the one year remaining on Bess's indenture contract. And Henrietta, she would remain a slave. And that's the way it starts. And Mm -hmm. uh, as you can see from the year, uh, it's going to tie in with uh, American independence. Mm -hmm. And Hurricane, indeed, there was one right about that time, and it was called the Hurricane of Independence, and it will play a part. a scene that I hope I never have to live through (laughs) where uh, Bess travels uh, a little bit uh, in the storm. I can read you a small part of that if you want. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Okay. It was a cloudy, moonless night on the evening of August 29th as Henrietta walked with Bess to the banks of the river to meet Cousin George. She's going to try to escape from the cousins now. The current was swift, the wind began to blow in stiffly from the east and northeast. As soon as they passed the town patrols, George put up the little black sail and showed Bess how to use the tiller. As they approached Orton, the wind began to bite greedily at their little sail, and hard drops of rain pelted them. A summer shower, said Bess. Don't think so, said George. This here river takes its lead from the ocean itself. These waters are looking mighty mean, and the wind, too we got to get out of this boat and on to land aim for that fallen tree sticking out into the river from shore we can walk the rest of the way to orton george maneuvered the boat closer to the tree jump he shouted as he leaped off the boat and pulled himself toward the shore but Bess was afraid of water she held on to the sides of a little boat as the wind spun it around. The current fought back, pulling the skiff toward the ocean. Suddenly, the slim mast snapped off, and the wind carried the tiny sail and mast away. Bess grabbed the tiller with both hands and continued careening down the river towards Smithville and the sea.
0: Wow. So, well, of course,
1: that's... the, the cape here, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just, you know, um, I'm curious now. So if you were going to, and that was wonderful, by the way, uh, I love um, the vernacular and everything. If you were going to take the story and you were going to do it as performance art, how would it be different?
1: Well, that's a very good uh, thing because when I'm doing it as performance art, I'm one person on the stage. So I have to create a voice for the story. Uh, in this case, I will probably tell it. Uh, for I tell it from the point of view of Beth, but as an older woman, and she looks back on it. So she'll tell you everything, just as if you and I were sitting down and having tea together, mm-hmm. and I was telling you about my former life, some, something like an interview. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she'll go through it. But as performance art, she'll also act some of it out on the stage, and she'll she'll show the uh, various things. She'll Make sounds and uh, noises, there'll be some effects
2: mm-hmm. that'll
1: go along with it uh, that will take the reader back through this these periods in her life and then bring her up to what will be the present, which is probably about I'll probably create it about seventeen eighty one The other story uh, begins in seventeen with the visit of George Washington goes backward in time and then. Uh, comes forward again, and again, I tell it through a single voice. Um, The only story that, the only one that's different from that is the Civil War nurse, where she actually acts out um, a period at the end of the war in a, a hospital in Richmond, Uh, where she cares for a Union boy and a Southern boy and messengers come to the door and they're all characters who are off stage and she deals with them. Mm. Uh, So Uh. that's that's more of an active piece than the others.
0: And do you wear costumes?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, For the uh, reenactor stories, I have uh, what uh, is a very... this (laughs) reputable-looking farm girl outfit for my um, indentured servants. I have uh, a a work outfit for all of my Civil War characters that I can adapt. Uh, I put mourning uh, jewelry on it. Um, Mm -hmm. I have gloves. I have hats. I have accessories that adapt it uh it's it's a very nice piece of reenactor clothing and i'm still seeking just the right dress for my other um revolutionary war story where i have a woman of a higher class i have to find a um an outfit that looks good on me and yet is <laughs> true to the area right uh, to the era rather
0: right. so um i don't know if you've done this uh, in the area yet there's a um... If you go to um, uh, Horry County, if you put into the search engine Horry County Graveyards, they actually have a complete list, and they actually have a list for each graveyard of all the people buried there and anything that might be inscribed on that that's, that you can still read. Oh,
1: that's interesting. And,
0: I, and you know, I have thought often, because a lot of these older stones are really stories in stones.
1: Oh, yes.
0: Yeah. And uh, I was down on, um, I think it was 90... After uh, Shaftesbury Glen, and there's a graveyard off to the side, and I was – because I am, I love graveyards. I'm crazy like that. And I'm going around, and I'm reading, and I look at the dates, and I read, and and there's a whole section where it's just wooden uh, posts sticking in the ground, and they're leaning every direction. Exactly. And right next to that, in a uh, chain-link fence surrounds this, is a stump. And I, so I was, I was like, what is that doing in the chain link fence? And I went over to look at it, and there's an actual sign there that says, "This is the stump that the women used to use to get off and on their horses after church."
1: Oh, there's, there's that. Uh, Virginia has quite a, uh, a liking for its trees and uh, cemeteries as well, and I. I knew that a record like that existed there, but I didn't realize that Horry County had documented so many of it. You know, a lot of Civil War reenactor groups in the area take on the task of uh, taking care of some of the deserted cemeteries, some of the cemeteries where no one is left in the family to take care of the cemetery and maintain it. And uh, it's one of the service projects that they have, uh, many of the groups. I I became friends with some people in a Civil War reenactor group in Whiteville.
2: Mm. And
1: I did my uh, story of Belle Boyd, who was a young and very outrageous uh, Confederate spy. uh, And her aunt lived in Front Royal, Virginia. And I tell the story through her aunt, because that way I can give perspective on Belle. Right. And, oh my, she was, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds like a great story. We'll have to have you back so you can tell that.
1: Well, thank you. I'd love to. I can't shut me up most of the time. But thanks <laughs> so much for having me on, Chris. I, I really appreciated the chance to get to know you, and I hope uh, to uh, just. I feel like your listeners out there. I, I'd like to know what their stories are too. So oh,
0: absolutely. Now I'm just. Your website is www.joanliotta. J-O-A-N-L-E-O-T-T-A dot com, correct?
1: That's correct. And if
0: somebody wanted to get in touch with you, uh, say, by phone, what's your number?
1: 910-575-0618. And I'm I'm
0: guessing that you have an email, too.
1: Yes, I do. It's Joan Leota, J-O-A-N-L-E-O-T-T-A, at a-T-M-C dot net. Apple Tom Mary Cat dot net.
0: Great. Joan, it's been, this has been a pleasure. I, we have not spoken before really very much, and uh, this has really given me a chance to get to know you more. and uh, We'll have to get together and have uh, coffee or tea or whatever you'd like. And take that walk absolutely absolutely we'll have to we'll have to hook up and uh, I'll bring the dog and we'll go down and we'll find that uh, marker there for the boundary house and then once again this is Chris Hillenberg with Here Women Tell where we today we've interviewed Joan Leota, storyteller and uh, stay tuned because next we have Linda Goodman with news and reviews And welcome back to Hear Women Tell. This is Chris Hillenberg, your host. And uh, now it's a special time we have with Linda Goodman, who's going to give us news and reviews. Linda, I just talked to Joan Leota. What a wonderful person!
3: Oh yeah, she's a good friend of mine. Yeah, she she
0: uh, we we just it was the most casual, pleasant conversation. And we're going to try and hook up down here to uh, to go see some historical sites because I I found out that she loves George Washington.
3: Oh yeah, you can you you can tell. The first story in her book, its just she, uh, is, she is one of the most historically knowledgeable people yeah. that I've ever known.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be really fun.
3: Wonderful researcher. I'd love to take a, a, a research course with her.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, uh, and she's got such varied interests, but you can tell she's a really good student. Oh, yeah,
3: and very willing to share what she learns and what she, you know, she'll soak up knowledge like a sponge and is more than willing to pass that knowledge on to others. Mm -hmm. Very Mm -hmm. generous woman.
0: Yeah, actually, and you know what? I haven't actually met her yet, but I think this Saturday we're going to try and hook up and and, uh, go walk uh, some historical sites here in Little River and Calabash.
3: Oh, you'll have a ball. Yeah. Um, Geva, I was going to ask you, do you have Mm -hmm. something of hers that you've reviewed? Actually, yes. Uh, Joan wrote a book with Edith Edwards, and the title of the book is Time with a subtitle, Women of the South. Yeah, wait a minute. Uh, She
0: actually talked about that. Uh, She read from it a little bit in the interview. Can you give us the name again, because you dropped out on the sound a little bit.
3: Tales Through Time, Women of the South. Ah, Great. Okay. And and the book is a celebration, as you probably know from talking with her, of Southern women from the colonial era through the present day. Tells through time, women of the South, gives the reader an intimate peek at the romance, mystery, friendship, and betrayals that ultimately claim us all. Excellently researched and skillfully written, reading these stories one after the other is like traveling in a time machine from period to period. Historical fact was simply our springboard, the author states. After all, only a few facts are needed to kindle the fire of a good tale. Authors compliment one another very well. Joan Leota's polished narration and Edith Edwards' daring choice of subject matter satisfy the reader's appetite like a well-prepared meal. The stories in this collection pay tribute to various genres, including horror, humor, romance, suspense, and historical fiction. All 14 stories in this collection are well worth the read, but two are especially engaging. A recipe for murder involves Leah, a Latin expert and a specialist in the life of Julius Caesar, who makes two significant discoveries, a personal note to Caesar hidden inside an ancient fasces, and a personal betrayal that will change her life. The title of the story tells you that a murder will be committed, but the victim of that murder is a twist that will shock everyone. And Preacher Parker Learns a Lesson, A crooked preacher is exposed by a clever boy who does not fear the consequences of his scheme. Indeed, he operates from righteous indignation, delighting the reader who will have a great laugh at Preacher Parker's expense. Leota is also a skilled professional storyteller, as you know. She brings her stories to life with spoken word as well as written words. And she's right now telling the fan choral the first story in the book, and is developing a show based on the hurricane of independence, also a story in the book. Mm. The book is well-rounded and enjoyable. It's a great reading experience. It gives the reader a bird's-eye view of what southern women have faced throughout history in our country. These still magnolias are survivors, and their strength, our hope. Mm.
0: That sounds wonderful, too. Wow.
3: It's a it's a wonderful book. I just uh, you it's you just a, it's
0: the way that they pull in history and they create the story. Uh Yes. It's wonderful.
3: And like she said, you know, with a story, you only need a few facts mm-hmm. to kindle the fire of a great story.
0: All right. Right.
3: Uh do you have any news for us this week? I, I have one piece of news. Okay. You might want to mark your calendars if you're going to be in the Richmond, Virginia area for August the 7th. The fifth annual Hanover Book Festival, sponsored by the, Hanover's Writers Chap- the Hanover Writers' Chapter uh, of the Virginia Writers' Club, is going to be held at Liberty Christian School in Richmond, Virginia. Actually, it's in Mechanicsville, Virginia. It's being sponsored by the Richmond Times Dispatch and local businesses, and it's going to be held at Liberty Christian School. Uh, the workshop begins, or the festival begins at... 9 o'clock. At 10 o'clock, workshops will begin. Now, the festival itself is free, but if you want to attend attend one of the workshops, they are $25 each, and there are topics including writing a killer query, creating nonfiction, promotions, writing dialogue, working with an editor, researching local history, which Joan does very well, and Mm -hmm. Making Stories from Story Fragments, which is a workshop that I'll be teaching. Hmm.
0: Oh, that sounds good. Now, when you say story fragments, what are you talking about? Just like little snippets, like, you know, kind of a a couple, three words or something like that?
3: Well, you know, normally when a story doesn't work, it's because you've got a fragment. You don't have a real story with a beginning and a middle and an end. Right. Right. The types of things we tell at family reunions often are fragments. They're not complete stories. Uh, a joke is just the middle of a story. You need a beginning and an end if you want to make it a story. So this workshop is going to teach people how to take story fragments and develop them into full-blown stories. Oh,
0: that sounds wonderful. I could that's use that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, You're that's... welcome to come
0: if you can get away. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Um so yeah, I just want to thank our listeners who have been sending in uh, news and information for us, uh, and I'd like to just say we enjoy that and we appreciate it, and keep sending us your uh, what's happening in your areas. And Linda, if they wanted to uh, contact you and send you this information,
3: how would they do that? Uh, to send me news, just contact me at happytails at aol dot com. That's h a p p y t a l e s. All lowercase, one word, dot com. And for CDs that you would like me to review, if you can't send them electronically, send them to my post office box. That's Linda Goodman, Storyteller, Post Office Box 1351, Chesterfield, Virginia 23832.
0: Oh, that's great. All right. Well, thank you again, Linda. I appreciate you filling us in with all the uh, news and really love hearing your reviews. Thank you, Chris. And so this is Chris Hillenberg uh, with another uh, program on Hear Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers and learn the story behind the story. Join us again next week. Thanks.